Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas coming to you all the way from freezing, snowy, but rather beautiful Colorado. Christmas greetings to you. And we're thinking, rather obviously, about Christmas. It was an excellent Christmas get-together. I'm part of a little gang of four chaps who meet quarterly to talk, watch movies, pray, eat, drink wine, eat, and then eat some more. Every year we get together with our wives for an annual Christmas soiree. And this evening that we had, it had all the ingredients of a perfect seasonal gathering. There were no chestnuts roasting in an open fire, but the crackling logs created a festive atmosphere and a delicious smell. The conversation was warm and humorous, and we took the opportunity to review the last year. It was a great Christmas meal. There was just one problem. The Christmas tree at the hotel was not only dead, but long buried, because our Yuletide event took place back in March, on Maunday Thursday to be exact. That means that the Queen was over in Ireland dishing out dosh, Christians everywhere were hopefully searching out fair trade Easter eggs, but we were doing the ho-ho-ho routine in Cheltenham. There was a perfectly good reason for our delayed Advent bash. I once heard of a church who were very much into spiritual warfare, but not quite so much into sanity, who decided to celebrate Christmas Day on Boxing Day in order, as one member explained, to outwit the enemy. I marvelled at the idea of messing up Satan's and possibly Santa's diary dates and tried unsuccessfully not to laugh out loud at this ridiculous idea. But our three-month belated Christmas celebration was simply due to busyness, flight schedules and the availability of the hotel where we stayed. Confusing the powers of darkness wasn't what we had in mind. But sharing a Christmas and an Easter greeting during the same evening got me thinking. I wonder whether card-carrying non-conformists like me, who are quite unaccustomed to stained glass or anything that is both ancient and modern, actually miss out on the blessings of the Christian calendar. Throughout history, God has used the rhythm of the changing seasons as a memory nudge to his forgetful people. As the Jews journeyed through life, they paused at the sacred signposts of a variety of covenantal celebrations, like Passover, Tabernacles, Purim, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur and the Sabbath. Their diaries provided prophetic wake-up calls as they remembered that, yes, they were refugees who had escaped from Egypt, but they were also a people of purpose with God himself at their helm. They parted and they paused to remember and to give thanks. Their festivals enabled them to reenact their history creatively. Not only would they hear the story rehearsed in words, but they'd participate as players in huge dramas where they were both the actors and the audience. The Passover feast was to be eaten by a people dressed and ready for a journey, with cloaks tucked into belts, sandals strapped on their feet and staffs in hand. And a mass campout lasting seven days was called for when the Feast of the Tabernacles was celebrated. It was not enough to hear the story of the nomadic journey of their ancestors through the wilderness. For seven days, the people had to live in booths made of tree boughs and branches of palm trees. They felt and experienced something of what their predecessors knew 
and experienced in history. And something similar happens to us in baptism and Eucharist, communion. Not only do we hear words about the wondrous Easter plotline, but we play a major part in the epic as we are washed in water and as the bread and wine touches our taste buds as well as our minds. From the earliest years, virtually all traditions of the church adopted the practice of following a Christian calendar. Perhaps those of us who are unfamiliar with it should join in. Meanwhile, I've decided that in the interest of avoiding spiritual attack and warfare from the Horned One, that I shall henceforth celebrate Palm Sunday on the day of Pentecost, will drive my car in reverse at all times, and will possibly change my name to Harold. That'll definitely bewilder the powers of hell. Lucas on Life Yesterday, I was served a cheeseburger by a deer. The management of my local fast food eatery had required their smiling staff to wear large scarlet antlers festooned with blinking fairy lights. For background music, a track from that compilation CD, now that's what I call music to go mad by, warbled, Christmas is a time for us to be together. Christmas is a time for us to love each other. I glanced around the crowded restaurant. A lady and her husband sat silently at a corner table. There was something vaguely menacing about the way she tore tiny bites out of her burger. Occasional frosty glares were exchanged between them. There was palpable tension that crackled like static electricity. And then, over in the other corner, another chirpy family outing unravelled as a manic infant swelled milkshake around his head, gloriously baptising nearby tut-tutting tables in strawberry. Suddenly, the gap between the image of Christmas, as it's supposed to be, and the reality of how it actually is, yawned before me like the Grand Canyon. Is that gap part of the reason why some find the whole business of Christmas just a bit depressing? Marital tensions, life-draining diseases, and worries about redundancy are pressures that don't take time off for Christmas, politely disappearing for the cheery season, and then popping back in after Boxing Day. The idea of a happy zone magical season can taunt us with its sheer unreality, especially if one is required to share the festivities with distant family members who irritate you into assassination fantasies before the Queen has even begun her afternoon national chat. The unreality has spread to the reason for the season itself. I have a few Christmas cards where artists have daubed the traditional nativity scene in unreal colours, tarting it all up with false glory. A surreally calm Mary who apparently chose to give birth while dressed from head to foot as a blue nun, glows with soft fluorescence, courtesy of a goldfish bowl-shaped halo. Joseph is usually absent from the scene. Perhaps he's out the back trying to straighten out a wonky coffee table he made earlier. And then baby Jesus, himself adorned in a junior-sized goldfish bowl, is sitting up already and appears to be thanking the wise men for coming to his party. All rather good for one who is but 30 minutes old, Grinning cattle peer at the family from neat hay bales that whiff of Chanel Number no. 5. Lovely. Even that old carol suggests a scene of blatant unreality. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Oh, really? Why wouldn't Jesus cry then? 
Perhaps he'd alert all and sundry to the fact that he needed his swaddling cloths changing with a raised hand of blessing rather than a heartfelt scream, him being the son of God and all. And by the way, I'm not being irreverent, but just questioning the rather unreal presentation of the true Christmas story. Much trouble was caused during one conference that I attended when a speaker suggested that Jesus went to the toilet while upon this earth, as if we didn't know. But there was an uproar among some who insisted that this notion was a blasphemy. But what on earth do they think he did for 33 years? It's just that the loo is so ordinary, so functional, so very human. The irony is that Christmas is actually the story of the extraordinary God kissing a very ordinary world, our world. The true splendour of the nativity is the notion of a God landing with, without much fanfare or fuss, welcomed by a few night workers and travelling mystics. The king shows up in squalor. Like a heavenly bungee jumper, he shunned the pristine order of heaven to dive down into our sweaty, confused, fog-bound world and announced a new order of living. Christmas says that we no longer need to haul ourselves heavenward by our own bootstraps, but that God comes to rescue those who whisper an invitation. Christmas, it's about the God who is willing to close the gap. Hi, I'm Sam Hales. If you're enjoying Lucas on Life, you'll love the Profile podcast. Every week, we sit down with a leading Christian to find out more about their life, faith and testimony. Here's Jackie Pullinger. This is very short life and eternal life is forever. We're going to feel all stupid for eternity if we wasted this one. Listen to the full interview with Jackie Pullinger now on The Profile Podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you get your podcast from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. What did Joseph do? John Lennon sung the questions, so this is Christmas and what have you done? Well, I'll tell you what many of us will do this Christmas. We'll fret about getting a present for Dad because, according to surveys, he's the most difficult family member to buy for. And we'll make solemn vows to watch our weight over the Yuletide season, but then we'll go ahead and eat rather a lot. The average consumption is a whopping 7,000 calories in the Western world during Christmas Day, a fact that really creates a lot of anxiety in turkeys. And we've already unpacked those Christmas tree lights that didn't work last year, and we've been disappointed to discover that they still didn't work this year. We've hunted in vain for that single robe dud bulb that is causing the whole string to stay dark. And then, madly, we'll pack them all away, enabling us to be irritated with them again next year. And then we'll work our scribbling way through a stack of Christmas cards, sighing with relief when the job is done. So this is Christmas. And what have you done? The stepfather of Jesus, Joseph, doesn't get huge profile in the New Testament. Mark's gospel doesn't include him at all. And Matthew doesn't mention him after the second chapter. And the Bible doesn't tell us how or when he died. But Joseph actually displayed some great character traits. He was able to admit that he'd been wrong after his first angelically inspired dream. He reversed his decision to break off his engagement to Mary. That alone makes him a great man in my book because some people never quite come to the realisation that they are not always right. His decision to stand by Mary surely didn't come without a struggle. 
he would have been expected to report her as a suspected adulterer. He most likely wrestled between a legal conscience and love, but thankfully, love won the day. And then, Joseph had the ability to be steered by the divine choreographer, God. Warned in yet another dream about Herod's impending infanticide campaign, he relocated the family to Egypt. And then a third dream revealed that it was finally safe to return to Israel. Yet another nocturnal message led him to actually settle the family in Nazareth. Together with Mary, he was self-controlled too, a real example to us in our just-do-it culture. Joseph marries Mary, and they enter into their marriage with all of the normal sexual anticipation that newlyweds feel. But there's no wedding night, no honeymoon for a while. Ensuring that the status of the virginal conception of Jesus is protected, Joseph and Mary wait until after he is born, until beginning a normal married life together. Following God is a wonderful privilege, but it's sometimes extremely painful. Mary's life of suffering is well documented, but Joseph knew his fair share of struggles too. He trusted when he was right in the centre of God's will, he found that everything still isn't plain sailing. The God who arranged a virgin birth didn't reserve them a room in Bethlehem. And then Joseph didn't even get to choose the name of his child. That was determined by angelic revelation. And then there were other painful moments and times of confusion, like when the boy Jesus went missing at the temple and then responded without a hint of unkindness, I had to be in my father's house. Surely that was a moment of potential pain as Joseph was once again reminded that he was at best the stepfather to this most remarkable child who was not his flesh and blood. Joseph probably died before the public ministry of Jesus. He didn't get to witness the wondrous works of the lad he'd raised. Sometimes life is tough, but the call to stay faithful remains. And so Joseph lived beautifully, behind the scenes, often unapplauded. This Christmas, perhaps you are one of those heroic souls who serve and trust and work and give relentlessly, but who are unsung heroes. And if you're not, why not change that if you know one of those people with a tender word of thanks and heartfelt appreciation? They might sense the encouragement of God through your smile and find fresh strength in their serving, a great gift indeed. And so this is Christmas, Joseph. And what have you done? Quite a lot, I'd say. And to all those who listen to Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio, have a very wonderful and happy Christmas. Lucas on Life.